This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast, the show where we are not afraid of books and dense conceptual stuff. And I'm very pleased this morning to welcome Daniel McCarthy to the show. Daniel is probably a name some of you know. He was a a longtime editor over at the American Conservative. He is currently the editor of Modern Age, which, of course, is put out by the venerable Intercollegiate Studies Institute. His work has appeared in all kinds of outlets, New York Times, Reason, etc. He's also at Fund for American Studies, where he runs the Bob Novak program, which I think is very interesting because I personally have read Novak's memoirs and find him a very fascinating character and had the opportunity to meet him once when I was in Washington, D.C. And the reason I wanted to invite Dan on the show, among other reasons, is that last week, of course, we covered The Enduring Tension, which is the new book by Donald Devine, who's also at Fund for American Studies. And, you know, that conversation was all about this notion that there needs to be something more in society than simply market and state, uh, that there is a, a void or a gap there. And I think that that conversation as it goes into fusionism, uh, libertarianism, conservatism, it is an important one to have. And I think Dan is perfectly positioned at the intersection of all these things. And here's a little tidbit I'm going to open with, Dan. Some of our listeners may not know that you were actually involved with the Ron Paul 2008 campaign. Uh, not only was I involved with the Ron Paul uh, 2008 campaign, where I was the Internet Communications coordinator, which meant the more or less official blogger for a few months on the campaign. But also, I was a um, graduate fellow at the Mises Institute back in uh, 2003 as well. Indeed. Indeed, you were. Now, what do you think is the legacy of Dr. Paul's campaigns today? Well, you know, it's hard to say. Obviously, Dr. Paul is still out there and, uh, you know, is continuing to critique the Federal Reserve and, you know, the direction of our foreign policy and so much else. I think he's continued to inspire a, a generation of young people And, you know, you have this um, sort of feeling among Beltway libertarians that the Ron Paul movement evolved directly into uh, the Donald Trump movement and that, uh, you know, the Donald Trump movement then became uh, something that, uh, you know, is anti-libertarian to the core. And um, I think that's kind of mistaken. It seems to me that, you know, there are a lot of uh, young Ron Paul activists who continue to, you know, be libertarian and don't think of themselves as uh, Trump supporters. But then there are others who indeed did become uh, supporters of Donald Trump, but who didn't abandon libertarianism by doing so, and who in fact saw Trump as being uh, by far the more libertarian choice and having more libertarian consequences for the country uh, than figures like, um, well, certainly the Bush dynasty or the Clinton dynasty or Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, for that matter. Well, there certainly seems to be a feeling, though, that some of the libertarian energy has dissipated. Obviously, we're post-Ron Paul, but now we're post-Trump. You know, I think there was uh, libertarianism got sidetracked um, after the Ron Paul campaigns. And, you know, there was great hope that Rand Paul would do well in 2016 in the primaries. And uh, that didn't really, uh, you know, pan out. And, you know, libertarianism was developing in an interesting Rothbardian libertarian populist direction, uh, you know, during the Ron Paul campaigns. And it seemed as if the populism that Donald Trump was able to, um, you know, sort of bring on to his side, um, wound up taking a lot of the energy away from whatever uh, developing libertarian populism there might have been. And I think that's partly the fault of libertarians for failing to embrace populism and for failing to, uh, you know, sort of take the Ron Paul radical point of view and instead becoming, a, you know, a little more technocratic and a lot more culturally left wing, which was both both of those things being poisonous. Yeah, you know, 
I agree entirely. I think populism is an empty vessel. It is a strategy. And you imbue it with whatever you imbue it. And, and I think it's entirely justified when you look at the 20th, the, let's say the second half of the 20th century, now the 21st century, when, when elites have failed us this badly, I think populism is entirely justified. Yeah, I mean, we have a ruling class which is basically inimical to uh, the American people as a whole and certainly to the values that uh, Americans have held dear uh, for centuries. And, um, you know, so populism is, is a, you know, predictable response to that. And I think it's, you not only see a kind of right-wing populism, but I think some of the movement uh, that you see on the left behind people like Bernie Sanders also, you know, it's, it's, it's misinformed and it's, you know, being directed into socialism, but it too, you know, sort of recognizes fundamentally uh, just how ill-served the country has been by the people who gave us the Iraq war and the people who gave us the financial crisis of 07 and 08. And of course, now it's, you know, Joe Biden and the people who are giving us, you know, these endless bailouts and endless, you know, sort of buyouts of the American voter. And uh, it's going to be a disaster. Well, in 2019, you wrote an article called Why Libertarians Are Wrong for the U.S. site of The Spectator. And we'll, we're going to link to that. You actually get a few free articles from The Spectator if you haven't been on their site lately. And I wrote a brief response not long after, and I went and looked back at it. And I'm really fascinated and sympathetic to one of your main points, which is that, you know, this Misesian or Hayekian version of liberalism turns out to not be very well equipped to deal with illiberalism of the 21st century kind. So can you expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah, I mean, you know, so much of what's happening right now involves uh, corporate America having adopted the values of the academic far left uh, and also, you know, the values that, uh, you know, certain parts of the, the government uh, through uh, various kinds of employment regulation and so forth have been promulgating. So, uh, you know, corporate America has now internalized an, an ideology which is very hostile to, uh, well, to uh, vast numbers of Americans and that wants to clamp down on their speech rights. It wants to, well, it's not speech rights, but their speech expression. It wants to, you know, forbid them from, you know, uh, speaking their consciences on Facebook, on Twitter and so forth. And these are private uh, entities. You know, they do have the legal authority to, you know, say what can be said on their uh, platforms. But um, if libertarians are complacent about the rules that are being set by these private powerful entities, you wind up with a public space that is really uh, being governed by the left and a, you know, a discourse that is being overwhelmingly governed by the left. And it can hardly be challenged by anyone who has, uh, you know, ideas that are springing from the right, including, uh, you know, sort of right libertarian ideas, Rothbardian ideas. And uh, so I think libertarians have been uh, a little too quick to, you know, say that because corporate America has the right to do some of the things that it's doing, uh, that is therefore um, unproblematic for liberty itself, that uh, corporate America is doing these things, um, you know, at the uh, sort of beck and call of the cultural left. Boy, I'll tell you what, that's, it's an uncomfortable thought, I think, for a lot of people like myself to say, hey, maybe we were just wrong about big corporations. You know, that's, that's not an easy thing. Now, when we talk about, call it the deep state, call it the administrative overclass, call it what you will, it's interesting because I know you're very well versed in James Burnham, who is getting his due today. Uh, and, and But what's interesting about Burnham is he spoke about this in the private sector, not just the government side. That's right. You know, Burnham was, um, you know, influenced by Karl Marx, but he saw that Marxism uh, was, you know, analytically uh, a disaster. And that, of course, you know, the Soviet Union itself was a, a totalitarian hellhole. 
So Burnham uh, moved away from Marxism, but he continued to try to analyze the relationships between politics and the economy uh, in a kind of Marxian way, looking at the flow of power between these sectors. And he realized that what was developing in the uh, mid 20th century was certainly not uh, the Marxist idea of a transition from uh, you know, a capitalist form to a uh, proletarian form of, uh, you know, first of all, you get to a proletarian state and then you get to the sort of withering away of the state altogether and you have a proletarian paradise. Burnham saw that that certainly wasn't happening. But Burnham also uh, realized that you did not simply have a continuation of 19th century capitalism in the mid 20th century, and that you had the growth of these new uh, administrative bureaucracies that were absolutely gigantic in the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, and indeed in the United States with the New Deal. And he saw that uh, there were strong parallels and connections and uh, you know, a kind of similar class of people to be found leading not only you know, uh, the New Deal and the federal government, but also these large uh, business uh, formations in the American economy. So he came up with this idea of the managerial class, and they are people who are, they're not the owners of corporations, they are simply the uh, technocrats who wind up becoming in charge of these large uh, enterprises. And they are technocrats who then have a certain interchangeability with the technocrats and bureaucrats of government, and they wind up adopting the same ethos. And uh, the whole thing becomes you know, this power complex of uh, that combines corporate power and uh, government power. You know, I think the Mises Institute critique of libertarianism has been that it, much like, you know, 90s Rothbard, I guess, is the expression people use and not always favorably, is the idea that this deracinated individualism, this uh, deference to technocracy and to perhaps unwarranted elites. And I think we've seen this not, you know, you mentioned Ron Paul and the Fed. That's a populist anti-technocratic message. But also, Dan, COVID has brought this out, this deference to, you know, vaccine manufacturers and doctors and trust the science and all this. And so I think the Mises Institute is sometimes attacked for saying uh, some of the kinds of things you say, uh, you know, in, in the spectator, in other words, that, you know, we, we need something else, this idea that um, you don't have any children, you don't really have any relationships, you don't have much of a sense of your particular town, you don't worry too much about future generations. So what are the limitations, I guess, of libertarian individualism? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things, um, you know, to the extent that some libertarians uh, think that they can be culturally neutral, um, I believe they're not only mistaken, but that ultimately they're going to wind up uh, being tools for the left. Um, in some ways, liberty, um, you know, which is a combination of uh, not only principles and laws, but also uh, cultural assumptions and cultural inheritances. And that if you try to do away with half of that, uh, that picture, uh, the other half, the laws and the formal rules, things like the non-aggression principle, are going to wind up becoming blurry or simply falling by the wayside altogether because they really are tied in with an idea that there is an essential justice to Western civilization. And while Western civilization may have a record of injustice as well, uh, the tendency has been for uh, the justice within our tradition to win out over the injustice. And if you don't buy that, if you believe that in fact, most of Western uh, civilization has been thoroughly bad and that only now when you have you know, state power and various uh, you know, grievance lobbies coming together to sort of you know, abolish any kind of connections to the older 
Western civilization, to its religious roots, to its you know sort of uh, cultural uh, presuppositions. If you think that you know America has only become a good a good country recently, if you think that Western civilization has only become more good as it has become sort of more anti-Western and it's started to you know sort of try to abolish itself. Uh, then it seems to me that you are undercutting the very, you know, foundations morally and emotionally and aesthetically on which, um, you know, even the most formal kinds of liberty in terms of our laws, in terms of our, you know, ethical principles, all of that, um, you know, sort of goes by the wayside along with the uh, historical foundations and the philosophical inherited foundations that it was all built upon. And uh, beyond that, I mean, libertarianism, when it goes to a kind of um, individualism predicated on a you know sort of sheer utilitarian or hedonistic view of human nature. Um, you know, while it can offer important critiques of statism and it can offer important defenses of the way in which the market works by coordinating the different subjective preferences that people have, if you take that as being your complete understanding of humanity and human nature, if you become basically a utilitarian and a hedonist, um, and I mean hedonist in the, the philosophical and somewhat morally neutral sense. I'm not just being condemnatory about that. But if, if but if that's all you believe in is this kind of you know utilitarian uh, you know calculus of pleasure, you wind up again having no foundation for any kind of stronger commitment to even liber libertarian ideals, even to ideals of liberty, let alone to ideals about you know the human good and about the flourishing of people you know in uh, connection with one another in communities and in families and you know, indeed in, in political communities as well. And uh, I think that's, you know, something where uh, a number of libertarians, including, you know, both Hayekian libertarians and some, so even some Misesians, uh, they, they go wrong. They have some philosophical premises which tend to lead to a kind of um, cultural uh, breakdown, sometimes as a result of indifference, sometimes as a result of leftward drift. But uh, regardless of which of those paths it takes, it can be quite dangerous. And you really do need to affirm, as Rothbard did, uh, some, you know, sort of higher understanding of human nature. Rothbard, of course, was very interested in natural law and natural rights. And it seems to me that um, there's a tremendous need right now for intellectuals on the right, wherever they're coming from, to start to rediscover, uh, you know, the older understandings of human nature and the idea of reason, not simply as instrumental, but as something showing us, you know, the higher part of our nature. Well, it's also difficult to sever individualism from the rise of Western Christendom. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I know you had uh, my colleague and friend, uh, Don Devine, uh, on the program. And, you know, Don uh, draws upon, for example, Eric Vogelin uh, in showing that, you know, Christianity uh, and the, uh, the, the alteration in human history that was made by Christ's coming as the Messiah um, really has profound political implications, including the idea that uh, the state should no longer be uh, a basically holy entity as it was, you know, uh, in you know, pre-Christian classical times where um, the state and the individual and religion were all had a tendency to fuse. And the idea that you could have you know, a connection to God that was not also a connection that was political was um, you know, uh, somewhat contrary to the ethos of, of the city-state and to the ethos indeed of most uh, you know, uh, uh, Middle Eastern empires and traditions and so forth. So Christianity, um, by creating this connection between human beings and uh, the church, human beings and God directly, uh, really revolutionized politics uh, necessarily. And some of that revolution has taken forms that um, are indeed individualistic. 
And, you know, Christianity is not about the salvation of particular cities or particular, you know, sort of collectives of uh, political units. Um, so when, I, when we talk about Christian individualism, however, I think it's necessary to keep in mind those very different foundations as opposed to foundations that are, you know, sort of purely on the more hedonistic and utilitarian side of things, which says that human beings are nothing more than just pleasure maximizing units. Um, because if you take that lower view of humanity, uh, you wind up with um, really no solid foundation for um, a civilization of liberty or a civilization of good order. Well, it's interesting to consider that the critique you're laying out here is shared by people across the political spectrum, including folks on the left who use the slur, I guess, neoliberalism, which is a vague term, but nonetheless, against this sort of Hayekian market uberalis. Uh, and, and there's also people like Patrick Deneen and Yoram Hazoni writing about the perceived failures of liberalism, so, and, and not, not to mention the Bernie Sanders type. So this is a very interesting time from that perspective. Yeah, you know, and I think uh, people sometimes get the wrong idea, both of Patrick Deneen and of uh, Yoram Hazoni. So, uh, and I, I consider both of them friends. I think both of them have written profound books. And I thought uh, David Gordon's review for uh, the Beezus Institute of uh, Patrick Deneen's book in particular, really um, kind of accurately got at some dimensions of the book that tend to be overlooked. So while Patrick Deneen is certainly, you know, a critic of capitalism and he sees capitalism and liberalism as being uh, inherently combined, with uh, a kind of moral relativism. Um, Deneen also, in fact, talks about the way in which uh, the modern state is an instigator of and a promoter of uh, the kind of, you know, sort of consumerist, uh, you know, um, uh, very shallow mentality and ethical outlook that um, people think of as being Deneen's critique of capitalism. So uh, people like David Gordon are able to see that what Patrick Deneen is critiquing is um, you know not just uh, capitalism, but actually a form of you know society that involves the state as well as a market that has been shaped by the state, as as David I think would recognize. Um, th these things have been combined into a force which um, you know again kind of mutilates human nature and and pushes people in a certain direction. And then Yoram Mazzoni I think is just a fascinating uh, intellectual who looks at um, you know why the nation state is um, is highly defensible as a uh, a, you know, something that is uh, very good for liberty compared to the kind of globalism and the international institutions and the anti-national, um, you know, sort of elite ideology that you see coming from uh, the progressive left. And Hazoni, you know, as uh, an Israeli himself and as someone who has uh, taken a, a close look at the Jewish experience, you know, since World War II, he has this brilliant concluding chapter of his, of his book where he talks about how, you know, many Europeans responded to the Holocaust by embracing a kind of international bureaucracy. And they became very hostile to the idea of a Jewish state because they didn't like the idea of any kind of nationalism. Whereas Hazoni sees that um, you know, people who actually, uh, in many cases, went through the Holocaust and, who, and Jews who responded to the Holocaust by saying, we need to have a state of our own so that we can defend ourselves and have a state where we can never be you know, treated the way we were treated in Nazi Germany. They had this very different response that was nationalist instead of the European internationalist response. And it just, I think, helps clarify where, you know, some of those divisions uh, between, uh, you know, globalists and internationalists on the one hand and nationalists on the other are coming from. I think it's a very, you know, sort of powerful, clarifying lens. You know, towards the end, Rothbard suggests that nation and state do not necessarily need to be synonymous, that nations can arise and represent a form of cohesion 
that is uh, that is not imposed from above. But of course, nationalism in any form is absolutely radioactive at a place like Cato or Reason. Well, you know, we have this uh, wonderful essay forthcoming in uh, Modern Age by Ophir Havery, who is a colleague of Yoram Hazoni's. And uh, Havery has written a lot about John Selden and certain other English thinkers. And Havery, uh, like Rothbard, makes precisely that argument. He, in fact, says that the biblical roots of nationalism are distinctly separate from statism and from the state. And uh, it, it's a profound argument. I won't try to summarize it too quickly here in the podcast. I'll just uh, recommend to readers that they check out uh, the spring issue of Modern Age, where Ophir Havery talks about the biblical roots of nationalism in, uh, you know, sort of, on the one hand, there is a, you know, a, an element of being a tribe, certainly, you know, historically, the, both the Jews and the Gentiles had that element. There's language, but the fundamental things are law and religion. And law and religion both, in fact, in Havery's argument, precede the state. And it's a fascinating point of view. It's very well supported, of course, in the Bible itself. And uh, Havery makes a case that it's actually very well supported in English history also. And uh, I think there's a, I think if Rothbard were alive today, he would look at an article like that and just find fascinating material to support his own intuitions about the relationship between state and nation. Well, I, Dan, I will look forward to that. I'm holding in my hand the winter 2021 modern age, uh, which arrived in the mail recently. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about some of the schisms, schisms on the right, which are, I think are also interesting. You've got the neoconservatives, you've got the Trump diehards, you've got the never Trumpers, you've got the Lincoln Project and National Review and Claremont, which has gone off and created some new uh, directions and products in the last few years. You've got Heritage, which is, I think, in, in a, a bit of turmoil with its short-lived recent president. You've got the Chronicles Magazine crowd. You've got the GOP itself. Uh, you know, boy, boy, oh boy. And I, I think to his credit, Trump did a lot of damage to the sclerotic end of conservatism, Inc. Yeah, that's right. And I think, uh, you know, the neocons, I've, I've been astonished because everything that I said about the neocons, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and that, you know, other uh, people writing for lurocko.com and for Chronicles and for the American Conservative, the things that Pat Buchanan and everyone else have been saying about the neocons have all proved not only to be true, which we kind of knew all along, but the neocons are now sort of openly admitting and embracing it, right? So uh, you look at uh, Bill Kristol and you look at his publication, The Bulwark, and it's not just that they became never Trump and anti-Trump. They're in fact like anti-conservative, they're anti-Republican across the board. And they're supporting, you know, things like HR1 and they want to see the Republican, they basically, you know, uh, they're like Trotskyists returning home to roost. They've returned uh, to their, you know, sort of ancestral Democratic Party. There was an essay by uh, David Goldman recently where... Uh, he, uh, he pointed that out precisely. He said that, uh, uh, you know, David Goldman's a guy who writes a lot about international relations. And uh, during the Iraq war days, he at one point talked to Yoshka Fischer, who was uh, Germany's foreign minister and a, a guy with a history on the, uh, the far left as a student. And Fischer said, boy, you know what? Uh, when, I, when I saw all these neocons, I recognized them because they were the old Trotskyist, communi uh, Trotskyist uh, colleagues from back in the day. And then he went through uh, David Frum and Richard Pearl's book, An End to Evil, and compared it to some of uh, Trotsky's writings, and Fisher said, "Oh wow, it's you know it's the same thing with just some of the terminology changed." So the neocons, I think, have totally you know read themselves out of the right at this point, and um, they were so dominant up until now that I think that leaves the right kind of wondering uh, what direction it's going to take. And so you see a lot of new thought right now. You see, I think, a lot of blossoming new talent across the spectrum, and um, you know you you see institutions that are older like Heritage 
kind of searching for a direction. And Heritage has recently, you know, its, it's president is stepping down. I think her tenure in the last year or so has been unsuccessful. And there's a real question mark as to where, you know, these big institutions are going. And institutions that are more nimble, places like uh, the Claremont Institute, for example, I think have really been uh, the most successful in this uh, current period. And Claremont, you know, I think it's identified with, um, you know, by a lot of longtime uh, supporters of the Mises Institute and others with a certain kind of, you know, Jaffaite, um, you know, Straussian perspective that is, um, you know, in, in many ways uh, a difficult fit <laughs> with um, some of the, uh, you know, sort of perspectives that have historically been associated with Murray Rothbard and with, uh, you know, the Misesian philosophical side of things. But in fact, I mean, the Claremont Institute today, while it still is true to its Jaffaite roots, is very open-minded and really does understand that, um, you know, the country is in a moment of crisis and there is a need to, uh, you know, find new coalitions and new allies and also to, you know, sort of intellectually engage with, uh, you know, a broad spectrum of thinking on the right. So I've been pleased to write for the Claremont Review of Books in a couple of uh, recent issues. I wrote an, uh, an essay that I was quite proud of about um, Andrew Basevich's um, Library of America anthology about uh, American conservatism, which is a book with lots of fascinating material, including essays by Rothbard. But I thought that Basevich's overall vision in that book was rather flawed. And uh, the Claremont Review of Books uh, invited me to review it. And uh, I, I was happy with the way that turned out. So I think there's a lot of uh, room right now for the right to kind of, I mean, it's the most exciting time for the right since those early 90s days when Murray Rothbard and uh, Chronicles came together and started forming, uh, you know, this paleo-fusionist alliance, so this paleo, you know, sort of um, entity. And while that had its flaws from the beginning, and, you know, it's, it's some of the critiques against it have been deserved, uh, I think there's an opportunity now to kind of freshly bring together these different elements of libertarianism, traditionalism, and even, you know, elements uh, like uh, the, the Claremont Institute, which have a kind of populist Straussianism at this point, um, to bring these uh, elements together in a very powerful new coalition against, uh, you know, both the sort of woke totalitarians and the neocons and the administrative state. So maybe it sounds, though, a little self-serving to say, oh, my gosh, the left today is so bad and so powerful and so culturally dominant that we have to drop our differences between the Misesians and the Jaffaites and get together and, and form this uh, a new fusionism. What, what would be the elements of it if it were to form? Well, first, I would say it doesn't involve dropping your differences. It just, you know, means engaging on those differences rather than sort of making those differences, um, you know, sort of uh, deal breakers for the coalition. So with the original paleo coalition back in the uh, early 1990s, um, it, it got along very well when you had Pat Buchanan himself closely engaged uh, and while Murray Rothbard was alive and was closely engaged. And then, you know, because of sharp differences about uh, the theory of free trade. It wasn't even the practice because both paleo-libertarians and paleo-conservatives were very critical of these managed trade deals like NAFTA. But of course, the paleo-conservatives had a view of trade that was fundamentally economically nationalist, whereas uh, you know Rothbardian paleo-libertarians had a view that was for radical free trade without having these you know massive bureaucratic uh, so-called trade deals. Um, some of those theoretical differences wound up becoming uh, politically fatal. Uh, in the mid 90s and the late 90s. Um, so it's not a matter, I think, of, uh, you know, sort of paving over your differences. It's rather a matter of being able to discuss those differences in a way that uh, doesn't injure friendships and doesn't injure the sense of intellectual community. And in terms of what the fundamental principles of, you know, some kind of coalition going forward would be, 
I think certainly it's a recognition of the strongly anti-Western and you know, sort of anti-American qualities that we, what we find on the left today. And the combination of government power and uh, corporate power and uh, the academy, which is kind of the, the coordinating, you know, uh, mediary, intermediary institution between the, the state and uh, the, you know, sort of uh, reconstructed woke, uh, you know, corporate America. The academy is the thing that connects those two and coordinates the two of them. Uh, this is a, a massive, you know, sort of complex of power that is, you know, both going to use law and going to use, uh, you know, sort of the abilities of private corporations and private entities to squelch any kind of, you know, sort of uh, Rothbardian libertarian thought, any kind of, you know, sort of uh, Claremont Institute thinking, and any kind of, you know, uh, traditionalism from someone like Patrick Deneen. And so there is, you know, first of all, just a survival interest in bringing together, you know, a coalition that is able to oppose that unitary left. And uh, beyond that, I think, you know, the, the both practical and philosophical questions that these different coalition partners ask of one another are good questions for the health of all of us. So libertarians, I think, and, and, and the Mises Institute can ask, um, you know, uh, people like Patrick Deneen, well, you've made a powerful moral critique of liberalism and of the way in which capitalism, or at least this neoliberal capitalism that exists under statism, has uh, evolved and has affected uh, the way people think and behave in their moral structures. But having made that critique, what kind of alternative economics can you offer? And I think a lot of traditionalists wind up drawing a blank when they get to that point. And it's because they haven't engaged with a lot of economic thought in a very deep and rigorous way. Whereas, you know, the uh, Misesians all have done so. And then on the flip side, I think, you know, Misesians can say, well, you know, uh, Mises himself was uh, a utilitarian and was someone who really did have a kind of, uh, you know, uh, an Epicurean philosophical outlook. Um, Murray Rothbard was a natural law thinker. Um, you know, Misesian libertarians, Rothbardian libertarians uh, can take the critique that uh, Dean offers and can say, okay, there is some more, there's a lot of moral truth to this. And so how can we have a free market without having these moral um, harms that someone like Deneen points out. And Deneen is, you know, uh, he's correct, of course, that the state is involved in these uh, moral harms in this, you know, sort of state-managed market that we have today. But the market itself, you know, especially if it's predicated on just utilitarian and hedonistic understandings of human nature, can also be uh, maybe, you know, detrimental to our families and communities. In which case, the question for libertarians is not, hey, do we scrap, you know, our, our understanding of property or the non-aggression principle or whatever. It's rather, how can we keep true to those things while also neutralizing and undoing and reversing uh, the moral harms that someone like Deneen points out as coming from consumerism? Well, we might say that libertarians need to learn culture, conservatives need to learn economics. I think that was the harsh statement back in the early 90s. Um, I want to finish this, Dan, by talking a little bit about the intellectual state of our country. I suppose we could call something like modern age high tone. Uh, I think when the Mises Institute encourages people to read 900 page books, a dense philosophy like human action, um, you know, you know the argument. It's too late for all these books and papers and conferences. The country's too far gone. Steve Bannon says we're in post-persuasion America. So what's, what are your thoughts on this anti-intellectual push? Well, you know, uh, even though um, certain figures who I would not consider to be uh, very um, necessarily solid in their, their thinking have appropriated Albert J. Knox's idea of the remnant, 
the original idea that Knox spelled out, which was that there are people out there, and you may not know who they are, but there are people who are morally and intellectually qualified to receive a you know powerful message of truth. Um, and this, of course, is it's a it comes from you know the biblical example of the prophet Isaiah, and it's something that um, you know Knox applied to the wider world of ideas. I think it's true. I think that um, even though you know at um, the common level you may have people who are uh, you know, not engaged in a lot of deep political thinking, and that's fine because most ordinary people have no reason uh, to be doing so. You know, I mean, it's not that it's not that I would not recommend you know reading Plato or reading you know Mises or reading you know anyone else to um, you know folks who just have ordinary busy lives. But um, but I can understand why they prioritize you know their ordinary lives over uh, intellectual pursuits. Um, but there are always people out there who, in fact, are going to be uh, extremely influential. On our culture, on our economy, and our politics, and uh, and religious life, and every other walk of life, who are very deeply intellectually engaged, and so I do think that those kind of intellectual wellsprings of civilization matter enormously. And so the work that places like the Mises Institute do, um, it is it is vital, and it really does have a spillover effect. So you think about the Ron Paul movement. The Ron Paul movement didn't spring out of nowhere, and you know this is one of the things that I was aware of as uh, you know someone who was. Uh, working for the Ron Paul campaign in 2008, I was aware of its in- long intellectual roots and of Ron Paul's engagement with the Mises Institute and of how you know uh, websites like lewrockwell.com and others and antiwar.com had helped to spread among a vital remnant uh, a se- set of ideas critical of um, you know sort of uh, the warfare state, the welfare state, and everything that was happening in America at that time that uh, then planted the seeds for the, the larger Ron Paul movement in, in 2008 and in 2012. And similarly, you know, you can look at the way in which certain um, paleoconservative ideas wound up being prophetic of things that, uh, you know, Donald Trump recognized and that the Trump movement recognized about, um, you know, the way in which the left is using corporate power as well as state power to tyrannize over America. And someone like Sam Francis, who, you know, I think there are libertarian critiques of him and there's certainly you know, critiques you can make of, of Sam Francis morally, but he was a brilliant political thinker. And he really was someone who, if you had been reading him back in the 1990s, you would understand so much about what has happened in the last four years and indeed the last, you know, sort of 15 years and into the future for that matter, um, relative to people who, who have never, you know, encountered his ideas. Uh, and so these intellectual uh, efforts, even though they may seem to, you know, be very long range in their, their effects, are still the things ultimately that I think move continents and you know kind of shift the currents of the ocean. Whereas you know immediate you know uh, political actions like memes and for that matter political leaders, those things are kind of temporary. And while they're important and they have a role, uh, you know certainly someone like uh, Ron Paul or Donald Trump, uh, you know sort of changes the way huge masses of people think. Um, but all of that kind of action is actually um, a secondary effect of these more profound intellectual shifts which uh, I think uh, intellectuals are the ones who bring about. And certainly you see that on the left where, you know, things that the academy was uh, doing in terms of left-wing identity politics 20 or 30 years ago, it seemed absolutely insane even to most Democrats at that time, are today, you know, the, uh, the, the law of the land for the most part in, 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 you know, coming from the federal government. They're also the rules that, uh, you know, are impl- imposed on people through HR departments and whatnot in corporate America. So the most radical, you know, intellectual agenda from the left uh, 30 years ago in the academy is now, in fact, um, you know, the kind of uh, set of rules under which Americans must live. 
So the right has to do the same thing. The right has to be able to think very thoroughly about what it believes and where its principles lead uh, politically, economically, and, and socially, and has to um, you know, promulgate those ideas and then somehow translate them into the realm of politics and into the realm of um, you know, society. Well, thank you for that hopeful answer, because sometimes I think we all need to be reminded a little bit that the things we do, um, the seeds we plant today may not bear fruit for decades, and it may even be after our lifetimes, but uh, that's okay. And, and we need to do it regardless. So Dan McCarthy, I want to thank you a million for your time this morning. I really, really enjoy your work. And I'm going to let everybody in our audience know the best way to keep up with Dan and everything he does, everything he writes, is just to follow him on Twitter. Thanks, Jeff. And he is at the delicious handle of Tory Anarchist. All one word, Tory Anarchist. I'll let you do the mental math on that one. I want to thank you again, Dan. And ladies and gentlemen, have a great weekend. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.